Tuesday, August 29th. Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up this hour, best-selling author James Patterson joins us to talk about his latest mystery novel. It takes place right here in Philly. Avi and I both flew through the books. Flew through the books. So good. We also get to talk to him about his inspiration and so many other things. Send in your questions for James now by calling Studio 2. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Speaking of flying, where does the time go? I know. It's almost Labor Day, Cherry. I can't believe Unofficial it. <laughs> end of summer. That's the bad news. But mm-hmm. um, as the season changes, so will your garden. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's time to preserve those tomatoes, herbs, squash, and whatever's left over from this year's harvest. So what's the easiest way to can without any expensive gadgets? What about great recipes that will stay good for months We're going to talk to an expert. Looking forward to that. Also, Billy Penn reporter Mayor Rendy is joining us in a couple of minutes to talk about SEPTA. But first, there's some breaking news. Yes, some breaking news from the Philadelphia Inquirer just over the last hour. Uh, Many of you will recall there was a mass shooting in the King Sessing neighborhood of Philadelphia in early July. The person accused of carrying out that massacre, Kim Brady Carriker, has just been found incompetent to stand Mm -hmm. trial. That does not mean that label will persist. He could still go to trial, but as of now, the trial is on indefinite hold. Carriker is um, being being told that he must receive uh, mental health treatment at a state-run psychiatric facility. So until that has been completed to the satisfaction of the court, there will be no trial in the case of Kim Brady Carriker. Yeah, and we will continue to monitor the breaking news and provide updates as they become available. Uh, Another issue that we'll be monitoring is related to the primary and the spring. Lawmakers in Pennsylvania's are considering whether to move the 2024 primary election date, because as it stands right now, it falls on Passover. But this is also a big opportunity because lawmakers could move the date up to make Pennsylvania's primary more impactful in presidential years. Governor Josh Shapiro and legislative leaders have all said that they support the idea. The primary election date could be moved up more than a month. Right now it's set for April 23rd, but it could be moved as early as March 19th. That's a big move. Yeah. Pennsylvania Senate committee will consider this bill on Wednesday and the proposed bill would permanently change the date of the state's presidential primary, but it wouldn't change the primary election date in non-presidential years. And this is the big, a big deal because, you know, Pennsylvania, Avi, is already a battleground state. Right. And if we had a March 19th date, it would make us like the canary in the coal mine and could actually have a huge impact on the outcome of the presidential election. Yeah, uh, most of you know that mm-hmm. usually, typically, and this will be the case likely in 2024 anyways, but but in future years, maybe not so much. But, you know, uh, typically by the time Pennsylvania's primary rolls around in an election year, you know, it's all decided. They're cleaning their hands. They're moving exactly. on to the general election. But I do remember the one year, it was 2008, I was in college at the time, um, when the Democratic primary, although mostly decided in favor of Barack Obama was still technically being, you know, contested uh, between Obama and, and Hillary Clinton. And I, I went to a tiny little college in 2008. 
we had Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton come within like three days of each other to talk to the students at this tiny college. And it just goes to show you, if you're still in the game, Mm -hmm. when it's still being contested, your state gets a ton of attention. Pennsylvania typically doesn't. Maybe they will in the future. Yeah, well, we shall see. Harrisburg needs to figure out a date and come up with a final agreement. Again, the date could be as early as March 19th or as late as April 16th. And so we shall see. We'll be monitoring that. We shall see. Mentioned that Labor Day is right around the corner. Schools are starting or about to start. Um, This year, uh, students across Pennsylvania will have free breakfast available to them in school. That is now a universal program thanks to the latest budget passed. This was a big priority of Governor Josh Shapiro. This has kind of been the state of play for a few years. There was some pandemic relief that Mm -hmm. had been um, steered toward this end, universal free breakfast in schools. But now it's going to be sort of permanent and codified moving forward, part of the state budget, instead of coming through federal funds or extended on a year-to-year basis. Um, So students can expect free breakfast Uh, no matter their income, when they show up at school this year, provided by the school district. Yeah, I have to say, as someone who grew up uh, in elementary school, I was on reduced lunch Mm -hmm. and um, reduced breakfast. It was like 30 cents for lunch or whatever. It was it was kind of it was a stigma attached to it, you know. And so by making it universally free, kids can step forward. You don't feel like you're being labeled just because you have access to this free meal or this reduced lunch meal. Um, Because right now, only a third of kids in Philly where free breakfast is is, is uh, um, already allowed. Only a third of kids take advantage of it. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because there is this stigma. So hopefully. But it is already universal in Philadelphia. Yeah, so I that know. that would suggest it's not the stigma. Yeah, but it also, they moved it from being in the cafeteria to classrooms. Yeah. And when you get free breakfast in the classrooms, more kids take advantage of it than if you have to go someplace spe- uh, special to get it. So hopefully by reducing the stigma, moving it into the classroom, doing some things like that, more kids will uh, take advantage because who wants hangry kids Yeah, I mean, in their classroom? I mean, you, yeah. you want breakfast, you right? Want, it's possible the kids are getting breakfast at that's home. True, that's true. They just true. don't want what, that's the, true. what the school is offering. That's but true. yeah, 30, obviously 30%, that's 33% is not a great uptake number. So perhaps uh, that will improve. Uh, politics now, local politics, I Cherry. know. There is a general mayoral, mayoral election coming up, if you didn't you know, remember. Um, and now there's a big question about whether or not a Latino town hall is going to take place tomorrow between David O and Sherelle Parker. And Parker says she's not too happy about it. Um, you know, she's Sherelle Parker is a Democratic mayoral nominee. Um, her campaign issued a statement Monday calling a Latino focused town hall a hoax and a fictitious event due to lack of proper planning. Her team says she got invited to participate in this alleged town hall on August 26th, giving them a, less than a week to prep. The event is set for tomorrow, but it's unclear who's necessarily behind it. Um, the ward leader for GOP, um, Uh, The 42nd Ward, last name Fisher, said that all of this has been prompted by this collective upsurge. But the people who are behind it each point to each other. So it's unclear who's behind it. David O., the Republican nominee, says it was his idea. It's just a lot of confusion around this. I'm lost. I do think my takeaway, though, from it, uh, as confusing as it is, is that very clearly um, there is some reticence on Sherelle Parker's behalf to debate because she is the heavy favorite, not a lot to gain by debating, even though traditionally it is done in Philadelphia general elections. And my other takeaway is that David O's campaign is trying to make a big deal of her reticence to debate. And, And right when you are 
the challenger, when you are the underdog, mm-hmm. you look for something to seize on. And clearly the O campaign has circled this, the debate issue, and said, maybe we can make some hay out of this. Yeah. And, and we'll see. And of course, you know, Parker doesn't want that kind of a of a scandal or anything saying, oh, you're not wanting to show up for public events, right, right. but it's unclear. But I will say that people in the city's Latino media network, they say that a meeting will take place this Wednesday with or without Parker. So we shall see. Well, I've got an idea. Yeah. Why don't they come on Studio 2 I and would have love a that. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. They are invited. They, we just invited them. <laughs> David O., Sherelle Parker, come on Studio 2. We will uh, moderate a debate. We'll t- give you the whole I hour. I would love to have that happen. <laughs> Um, well, SEPTA will likely come up mm-hmm. in that debate if it ever happens. And a lot of SEPTA writers can tell you the frustration that comes from waiting and waiting and waiting for a bus or train. The transit agency has long promised better tracking technology so you can know when your ride will arrive. But it's been a slow journey. Mayor Rindy is an investigative reporter for WHYY's Billy Penn. He recently wrote about SEPTA's tracking troubles and why this particular challenge is so critical to the agency's future. Mayor, thanks for coming on Studio 2. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So SEPTA has been working behind the scenes for the past couple of years to make its system more user-friendly, and a big focus is the accuracy of the app. What have been the major problems that SEPTA has bumped up as its top priority for solutions? Well, the app is pretty accurate from what I understand, but there are some problems. For example, sometimes it says a bus is coming and then the bus doesn't show up. Mm. Uh, Sometimes the app shows the bus being somewhere different than it really is. Um, Also, there isn't real-time tracking of the subway trains, so you just have to use a prefix schedule. Um, There are also other issues with the detour information being hard to understand. Um, And so a lot of people use those apps, and they are helpful, um, or the website, but there there are a number of, of glitches that they still need to work out. When you go and stand on a subway platform in a lot of cities up and down the East Coast, you'll see a countdown clock telling you when the train is going to come. Why don't we have that in Philly? What are the big challenges to rolling out that technology? Philly does have the uh, ability to do that. The technology is in place, but they're kind of translating old sensors, track sensors, into app data and countdown clock uh, screens and so they're they've been testing it out. There have been some pictures online uh, on social media of people saying, "Look, there's a countdown clock," um, but they want to. They say they want to iron out the details and make sure it works reliably before they hmm. they start installing or, or activating those clocks on the platforms. Yeah, SEPTA has been sort of shifting under the new CEO for the past couple of years from uh, internal fixing things up to more external facing things. Why? One thing they say is that the um, the pandemic changed commuting patterns. People don't commute as much every day at the same time on the same routes. People are taking rides at different times and so forth. And so they want to be able to say, oh, I want to I take a train or a bus. When's the next one coming? I want to know exactly. People take Uber and they can see when their car is coming. And yep. so they've mm. gotten used to that. And um, there, there are other issues, too, like uh, safety. People mm. don't want to wait for a long time at a bus stop in the dark or in an unsafe place. So if they know they can get there a couple minutes before their bus arrives and not have to wait, it, it may attract more people to the system. And SEPTA really needs to attract more people because ridership fell a lot during the pandemic. 
Yeah, that that light bulb went off for me reading your piece, thinking about, well, what does SEPTA have to do to meet the demands of the rider of the future? And if the rider of the future is not someone who's taking the same train at the same time every day, then that rider who's going at irregular times really needs more information about when the bus or train is coming. So is that information coming? How, what, how soon? I mean, give us some timeline or sense of timeline that you've gotten from the agency. I mean, what SEPTA says is we don't want to give out timelines <laughs> <laughs> because we've been burned in the past. Yeah. You know, they've been talking about countdown. Under promise, over deliver. Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes right. The they've been they talking about it. countdown clocks for years, um, yeah. and they're still not quite there. Um, and there are a number of technical issues and budget issues why that hasn't happened. I mean, they, they have the new... Um, beta version, the sort of test version of the website is already up. People can start using it. It should be a little easier to use than the old version. Um, the app is being developed, and it sounds like it might come out this year or, or early next year. Um, so some of those things are coming. Some of the other things, though, like fixing detours, fixing ghost buses, those are there are some sort of deep technical issues, some software challenges that it sounds like it'll take a lot longer for those to be worked out. Another big issue has been payment. I mean, people don't want to always have to use the Septus key card. They want to tap their phone. They want to tap their debit cards or whatever, like they do for paying while paying for other things. Will this happen with Septa? So it is starting to happen. They are doing a pilot now where you can sign up to be a tester. And in fact, I've done that. And oh, I recently, have? I paid, I have paid for the bus uh, just by t- uh, tapping my phone using Apple Pay. And it worked, man. It worked. Oh, All right. God. I've done it on the subway as well. Um, so uh, you can you can go on uh, to their website somewhere and, and sign up for that. It is pretty cool, I got to say. Um, so that looks like it is definitely going to roll out for everybody eventually. Yeah. Um, but right now it's just in the in the early forums. And you just said something earlier in this interview that will stick with me moving forward, the idea that people have grown, grown accustomed to the convenience of payment and of use with apps like Uber and Lyft. SEPTA has to match that moving forward. Yeah, I mean, people I've talked to have said um, there needs to be a shift, and and they say this is happening under the the new CEO, uh, Leslie Richards, where it has to be all about customer experience. It all has to be about convenience, uh, reliability, accuracy, not just making sure the buses and trains run on time, which has been the focus for a long time, but but really making it customer friendly. Shift the focus. That's Mayor Rindy, uh, investigative reporter for WHYY's Billy Penn. Fantastic new piece on SEPTA's future. Check it out at BillyPenn.com. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Up next, best-selling author James Patterson is standing by. Stick with us. That's to come. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Our next guest is the author of thriller series like Alex Cross, Women's Murder Club, and Maximum Ride. His latest, Lion and Lamb, follows two rival PIs, that's private investigators for those of you that don't speak the mystery (laughs) language, as they try to solve a headline-making crime involving two very prominent Philadelphia celebrities. James Patterson has penned or co-authored a number of books since the 1970s, and we get to talk to him today about his latest. Also, we're going to talk to him about his inspiration, his writing process, and the formula for a truly great mystery novel. James Patterson, welcome to Studio Two. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I love being uh, in the Philadelphia area in any way, shape, or form. We do too. We, we love it. We love to have you. And for our studio, yeah. and for our studio two friends who want to join the conversation, call us now. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio two at whyy.org with your questions for the one and only James Patterson. So uh, just a heads up before we start this conversation, we're not going to spoil the plot of Lion and Lamb. And no, there are no, a lot no. of twists and turns. But um, the fact that it takes place in Philadelphia and really takes place in Philadelphia is notable, uh-huh. James. And uh, uh-huh. this book is, is loaded up with Philly-specific references that gave a yeah. smile on mm-hmm. my face. Mm-hmm. But I am curious because you reach— I, I think that becomes fun for readers if you know yeah. the area. It is, it is particularly cool to, to read about things. That, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I know that street or I know— yep. You know, I, I know at the art museum, I know the, the sense, which is where the book starts outside the art museum. Yeah, but that is fun. And what do you think readers, because you have readers all over the world, do they get something out of that as well? Or is it more just a wink to the Philly reader? I think it's both. I think I, 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 I think we like to, to read about places we're not that familiar with or, or you know, or, or familiar or, and want to be more familiar. So I think people enjoy Philadelphia in the book. My connections, a lot of connections that I have, we've had, my wife and I, we've had scholarships at University of Pennsylvania for about a dozen years and traveled down there a lot. Uh, Our son um, eventually had to choose between Penn and Brown. Um, He he chose incorrectly, he chose Brown, (laughs) but uh, it was... (laughs) Noted. I wear a pen hat around, a a pen, uh, uh, I say that the P stands for Patterson, but it's actually a pen hat, University (laughs) of Pennsylvania. Uh, My co-writer, Dwayne Swarzynski, he's he's from Philadelphia, so uh, uh, that was helpful, obviously. He knows Philly very well. I know it a little bit, but he knows it a lot, so that was very cool. the it's not a football novel, but there's an, some in, the, the mystery revolves around a, a quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles who gets murdered. I will let that out of the bag mm-hmm. uh, since it happens right away. Uh, so we needed a city, obviously, that has an NFL team and, and Philly's, Philly's a good one. And, uh, and, and, and when we were putting the book together, it was right when the Eagles were making their run for the Super Bowl. Oh. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, I I have to ask you this, because in reading this book and other books that you have written, um, there are so many twists and turns and just wild plots. Where do you get your inspiration from? Because you have a wildly creative mind. Yeah, you know, I say every once in a while, uh, uh, there's a lot of criticism people can make of any book, but I don't write realism for the most part. Um um my my stories are a little bigger than life all of this couldn't happen um but if it did happen it would happen something like this one of the things that i that i like about the book and i and i think that readers will like a lot is you mentioned two private investigators which are lion and lamb cooper lamb um he works for the defense and and Vina Lyons, she works for the for the prosecutors, but they make a vow to one another that whoever discovers some truth, they're going to go with that. So so they, they 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 want this thing to turn out the way it should, which isn't totally realistic, but it's a lot of fun yeah. to have the two private investigators going. Okay, whoever whoever uncovers the truth here, we're going to go with it, even if it doesn't serve our uh, our our purposes. 
Yeah, when I first opened the book, I thought it's going to be more spy versus spy, but it ended up being more spy with spy. Yeah, and collaboration. Sort of spy yeah. collaboration, which uh-huh. I hadn't seen a lot of in, in other books. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, James, about the tactile experience of reading a book like Lion and Lamb. You just mm-hmm. feel so propelled. We always use that that cliche page turner. But because of mm-hmm. the size of the chapters and, and the spacing of the chapters and even the font, you are constantly turning pages and it does give you this sort of addictive sense of momentum. How involved are you in those stylistic choices? Are you involved with font? Are you involved <laughs> well, certainly with the spacing? length of the chapters, I'm very involved. <laughs> right, right. But how about um, beyond that, the presentation? Term- not not too much, really. Uh, I do think it's useful that the type is big enough that people can read it. You know, uh, sometimes, especially as I get a little older, some of the books I go, oh, my God, this type is so small. <laughs> I really have trouble reading it even with my spectacles on. Uh, so that's a small uh, factor. Um, but I do like that idea. I mean, one of the things that I think about is at the end of a chapter, I do. I want to, I want the reader to go. Let me read some more. I, I love it. Love hate when you're watching a, 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 a like a, a series on Netflix or whatever, and the hour ends, and you go, "Oh my God, you can't end there!" You know, I want to know the next scene. So I like that idea where you're reading and you can't wait to read the next scene or uh, or the next part in the book or whatever. You know, so I, I I like that. I think that's enjoyable for a lot of readers. I will say I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I read it on the beach over the weekend and I I was flying through it. I felt very accomplished uh, when I finished it. And I want to bring in uh, one of your. That's a piece. That's a piece of the puzzle, too. I think people do like that. You know, I finished a a chapter. I finished another chapter. I finished another chapter. Not to overstress it, but I think that's fun for people, too. Yeah. And I want to bring in one of your loyal readers. We have Dawn from Mount Airy huge fan of yours. She wants to talk about how she reads the stories. Dawn, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hi. um, I am legally blind, and I have to read with a closed-circuit television, which magnifies the print. I read your books until I'm tearing. My eyes are so sore and Mm -hmm. tired, and I just can't stop. So thank you for those books and giving me the opportunity to be able to read it. Well, I'm happy so what, I could cause you pain. That's great. <laughs> it's okay, though. It's good. No, no, I'm, I'm, pain, ha- yeah. I'm, happy, I'm, I'm really happy that you're, you're enjoying the books. All right. And when is the next Alex Cross book? The next Alex Cross will be in November. Actually, before that, there's one coming in September, which I, I really, I mean, you hope they're all going to turn out great. But there's one called 12 Months to Live, which I, I did it with Mike Lupica. And I think it's it might be the best thing I've ever done. So so you might want to consider that one. Twelve months to live, and that is in in, uh, in, in late September. And then Alex is I think November, and we have a, a, a series which we've finished shooting for Amazon. Uh, uh, so so uh, uh, Alex will be uh, uh, will be will be hitting the airwaves again soon, and, and it's good. They did a, yeah. they did a really nice job. Yeah. And Excellent. Thank you so much, Don, uh, for your comment. And, and by the way, James, I have a question about Alex Cross. I first became introduced to uh, Alex uh, back when Morgan Freeman starred in Along Came a Spider back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, you know, I read a story that when movie execs were making the movie, they wanted to change the race of Alex, who is a black detective. Yeah 
to one yeah. that was white. You refused. Tell us that story. Also, tell us what inspired you to create a character like Alex Cross that people like Dawn just love so much. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I grew up in a, a small town up the Hudson River in New York State. Town was um, pretty uh, a real racial mix. It was a tough town, but in those days, you know, you didn't have guns, so you had fists and some knives, but it, but no guns, thank God, or not many. Um, played a lot of basketball. That's my I could dunk in high school, which is that's my oh, my the whole pretty cool. my highlight reel. Yeah, yeah, little five eleven white guy. Um, my my grandparents had a small restaurant. The the cook was a black woman and. Um, at some point when I was a little kid and she was having problems with her husband and she just moved in with us for about two or three years. And during that period, I spent a lot of time with her family and, and I, they were great. They, the, uh, they were, they were funny. They were smart. The food was great. The music was great. And I think that's what kind of got me interested in the cross family. And in those days, I mean, I'm sorry, after that, when, when I, in my twenties and thirties, Hollywood would make these movies and pretty much every black person in those movies would have a boom box on their shoulders. And I went like, that's, that's crap. I don't, I don't buy that. That's just not, that's not, it's not right. And that's sort of where I started to, to create Alex because of that, partly what was happening with the movies, partly my own experience growing up uh, 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 with, with Laura, you know, kind of raising me or certainly being one of the people who raised me. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where Alex came from. In the um, uh, in, in 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 the Amazon series, uh, Aldous Hodge uh, will will play out. He's great. He's great. He was in um, City on the Hill on and Showtime, and then uh, uh, One Night in Atlantic City. He played James Brown in that. Uh, he, he's very, very good. Very good. Looking forward to that. We are speaking with James Patterson, uh, best-selling author on Studio Two. His latest Lion and Lamb takes place right here in Philadelphia, starts with, uh, this is no spoiler, by the way, starts with the murder of a fictional Eagles quarterback the night before the NFC Championship what? game, and it just takes off from there. If you want to join us, give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email your question or comment to studio2 at org. Going back to your childhood, James, do you recall the first story that you heard that made you want to tell a story? Um, I, not exactly. It's so long ago, but, uh, my mother was a teacher. Um, so, so books were important. She was a teacher and then on a weekend she worked in the library. Uh, I actually have a book coming out in April, uh, nonfiction, uh, the secret lives of librarians and booksellers, which is sort of a funny title. Hmm. And it's just all interviews and then cutting those interviews down at the five or six pages. So you really get a feeling for that bookseller or that librarian uh, and, and, and some of their stories. Uh, uh, so that's a real fun one. Uh, uh, and there are a couple of people in the Philadelphia area who, who I interviewed. Uh, um, so that, that's, that's kind of a neat one. Yeah. But that's why my mother was, was, I mean, that's part of what attracted me to the book because she was a, a part-time librarian in addition to being a teacher. Wow. I, I am sort of semi obsessed with people who have big career changes and you're mm. one of those people because you spent, a large chunk of your career working in 
advertising and then one day decided yeah, I, well, I wasn't advertising but i've been clean for several years yes now. but now you're <laughs> recovering clean. you're a recovering <laughs> advertiser right. yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm also a career changer but what what moment did you um sort of like decide you know where i'm gonna take this left and just give it all up and start something new especially in a profession yeah, you know, where a lot of people don't funny... do well yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's a, it's a funny uh, I, and i can remember the exact moment i uh, I, I, I did well in advertising, but I didn't like it. I didn't like the job. Uh, my my claim to fame in advertising, I wrote the line, I'm a Toys R Us kid. Huh, but I was, what? I was heading back to <laughs> New York one. from Jersey uh, one weekend. It was a Sunday. And I hated the idea. It was a beautiful weekend. I hated the idea I had to go back to work in advertising for the, on that Sunday. And the traffic... Uh, uh, going up the Jersey Turnpike, it was like wall to wall. It was going like 10 miles an hour. Okay. So I'm in this traffic. I'm hating the idea that I have to go back to New York City and do advertising. But on the other side of the highway, about every 15 seconds, a car would go by, whoosh. And after 15 seconds later, whoosh. And another 10 seconds later, whoosh. And after an hour or so, it occurred to me that my life was going in the wrong direction and i had to get on the other side of the jersey turnpike the side that was going whoosh whoosh as opposed to and that was huge for me mm -hmm. and, and i just made that decision that that's what i want to do i, I want to be on that side i don't want to work in advertising uh i i want to write novels full time and i literally made that decision in that car that 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 sunday that hot sunday and in, in, in summer sunday that might be the most productive thing the jersey turnpike has i ever know done. that is a, i oh, love yeah, that, that story good, it certainly was my best moment on the jersey turnpike. <laughs> far surpasses mine i wanted to bring in a an email here from jim in south philly who wondered uh do you have any literary idols well, yeah, I mean, tons. I mean, in terms of people who influence me, I don't know that people are aware of uh, Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge, uh, uh, two um, uh, novels. They're, they're set in Kansas City. They're about nine years apart. Uh, Mrs. Bridge is her point of view on, on the family's life in Kansas City. And then nine years later, Mr. Bridge is his view. That really um, uh, had a big effect on me uh, in terms of storytelling. Um, Jer Jersey Kaczynski, who people don't read any more steps, uh, was another book. Short chapters, very pointed, hopefully some wit, charm. Uh, so those are very uh, uh, important for me. I read a lot uh, as a, as a, especially uh, once I get in college. Uh, went to graduate school. I was a PhD uh, candidate at Vanderbilt and. And, and English major, and when I left because of the the, the Vietnam and the draft, but uh, yeah, so so that was the background was was a, a, I was a literary snob <laughs> before I became a mystery writer. <laughs> Very cool. If you want to join our conversation with best-selling author James Patterson, you can call us. 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. So James, you've co-written a number of books. You have all sorts of collaborators. Your big yeah. process. Why, you want to do one? Uh, you know what? <laughs> if, with you, absolutely. Uh, Cherry's got a fertile mind. <laughs> Cherry's got a fertile mind. All right, all right. Um, but no, you, and so you have a process that uses the outline. And some of your outlines, 
they can be dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of pages. Can you talk about your process for developing some of these twisty, turny um, storylines and how you keep everything straight? Well, it, it, it varies. Some of them I'll, I'll do the whole book and sometimes with the, and the outlines depends on who I'm working with. Um, the outlines are always between 60 and 90 pages. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've done obviously, well, not obviously, but I've done, I did a novel with Dolly Parton, uh, Run, Rose, Run, and that was just a lot of fun. And she's a great partner. And I went down there and met her in Nashville and we spent a couple hours together and, and we just made the deal for that book, just the two of us in the room, no lawyers, no agents, no BS. We just you know, kind of did it. And that was very cool. And he became a really good friend. And I, I had a little outline for the story. And two days later, she had given me her thoughts on the outline and had already written seven songs wow. for the book. Hmm. I mean, that's the way Dolly is. So that was you know great fun. I've done a couple with President Clinton, uh, doing another one now. Uh, and those are terrific because he brings, uh, you know, the knowledge of the White House and the presidency and the Secret Service. And so you don't have to make stuff up, you know, uh, uh, and that was great. I just finished um, Michael Crichton, uh, who died 13 years ago. He had started a book about a, a volcano in, and it takes place in Hawaii, on the island of Hawaii. And uh, uh, his estate brought the, the he, he, it was an unfinished book. And they said, would you like to finish it? And I said, well, let me read what he wrote. And so I finished that. And that really, I, I think it's really a fun book. That'll be out next year. Um, so it really depends on on who I'm working with. But, it's, but it always starts with an outline. I always try to get the collaborator to contribute to the outline because one, I want their thinking. And secondly, I want them emotionally involved. And then, um, you know, I will then do some of the writing or be involved in the rewriting, et cetera, et cetera, from that on in. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the discipline of writing, your daily routine mm. is, is somewhat legendary. I was hoping you could walk our listeners through that daily writing routine, but also at what point in your life did you develop it? Like, did you have that type of discipline when you were you know, 20, 25 years old, or was yeah. it something you had you know, to develop? If, people, if they actually, if anybody is interested enough after this, if they haven't heard enough, I actually did an autobiography last year, James Patterson by James Patterson, and it really goes through all of this. And I think anybody who's interested in writing or writers uh, will find it, uh, they'll they'll pick up a lot in, in reading that and, and how difficult it is, and certainly what my style is. Um, um, which which is always to you know start out with an idea that I I'm really emotionally involved in and want to write uh, uh, and 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 then and then start jotting down just scenes scene after scene after scene and that, that's how I do my outlines. Yeah, I read that you have never had writer's block. How how is that? How is that the case? I did actually have it once. Um, I was with a woman. Um, <laughs> And no, yeah, that's not how it happened. It's a, it's a funny line. It wasn't funny, unfortunately. But she developed a brain tumor, and she was at that point the love of my life. We've been together for seven years, and for a year and a half or so, I couldn't. I couldn't write. I was. I just couldn't do it. I just was incapable of sitting. In fact, I tried to write a book, and I wound up. I mean, seriously. Uh, I destroyed it, and I, I, I don't even, I have no, no copies of it, nothing. It's gone. Um, 
Um, so, so that was that was my my one period of writer's block. And how have you avoided it since? Because a lot of writers. I yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I only write about things I want to write about. So that's a big that helps a lot. Um, if I get to a chapter or a couple of chapters where I'm not I don't have it figured out, I just go on. I do not sit there and torture myself. I just figure I'll get it on the next draft or I'll get it on the draft after that. And if eventually I don't get it, I'll figure out a way to turn it into a half page lead into a chapter. You know, earlier uh, after Harold's wife disappeared, <laughs> I won't get into how she disappeared, you know, whatever it is. Earlier this year, in, in terms of uh, sort of writing and, and finding the, the, the tent poles for creating a great story, you told GQ um, that if you can write beginnings, in end, you can make a nice living as a writer. If you write middles, you win Pulitzer Prizes and stuff, but with beginnings and ends, you're going to do okay. Could you elaborate on that? What what, what do you it's think is the power? It's a little bit of a joke, but I mean, there, there, there's some truth to it. I, I think it's, it's useful, certainly for, not for all books, but for a lot of books, if you, especially books that, that tend to sell, it's good if you can tell people in a couple of sentences enough about it so they go, I want to read it. My wife uh, did a novel um, last or this earlier this year, and um, her mother died at 98. And uh, a couple of weeks later, she, she just said something to the effect of there's so many things I wish I told my mother. And I said, that's, that's, that's a great title. And mm -hmm. her, the title of her book is Things I Wish I Told My Mother. And it's a real mother. It's not about her mother and daughter. It's about another mother and daughter. But it's such a you, you hear that and you kind of you're interested. You're interested. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the key things. And then, you know, you, in terms of the beginning, you want to get people into it. You want to hook them a little bit. You want to get them. Uh, uh, they're curious about the character right away. At least I, I think that's useful. And at the end, you want them to walk away satisfied. Um, same with movies. I mean, if you walk out of the movie and you're not satisfied, uh, even if you like the movie a lot of the way, you, you tend maybe not to say the best things about the movie. Just because, yeah. So I, I, I like to hopefully leave people satisfied at the end. So I got to ask you, what sort of is on the horizon and, and keeps you in the game? Because you spent quite a bit of time writing books. You have a lot of collaborators. You've done so well doing this. But what keeps you in the game and, and keeps you loving you know, the work that you're doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't work for a living. I play for a living, honestly. Mm -hmm. But there was a, and I don't know where this came from, but something I came across early in the year, and it's been guiding me in terms of the projects that I do, what books I do, what books I don't do, uh, whether I wanted to, to finish Michael Crichton's book, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the language, and, and I think it's as valuable for a 20-year-old as it is for me, and, 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 and what it is, is my time here is short. What can I do most beautifully? And, and, and that can be raising your kids. It can be, you know, having a sideline as a potter. It can be uh, uh, writing novels. But, but that thing about thinking that through and deciding what can I do most beautifully? That is best-selling author James Patterson. His most recent mystery co-authored with Dwayne Swarzynski is Lion and Lamb. It follows two rival private investigators who know every secret in Philadelphia. Up next, we'll investigate the best ways to preserve your summer garden harvest.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio Two. It's all about beginnings and ends. I'm Javi Wolfman, and I'm Cherry Gregg. So, speaking uh, about ends, we're all a little sad that August is coming to an end. But for gardeners and all of us enjoying produce that's perfectly in season right now, there is a way to preserve these beautiful summer months. And while pressure canning might be a little intimidating for those of us who've never tried it before. There are many ways to make your fruit, veggies, and herbs last for months to come, from something called fridge pickles to jellies, fermentation, the humble freezer. There's a lot to talk about. So we asked Sally McCabe to join us on Studio 2 this afternoon. She's the Associate Director of Community Education and Community Gardens at Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, and she came bearing gifts, a big old uh, tin full of tomatoes here. Sally, welcome to Studio 2. Well, so glad to be here. And figs, figs. And those Don't figs forget those figs. I yes. want to try the fig, but um, I'm worried it'll make me sticky and then I'll mess up my computer. That's after the show. The tomatoes For I'm going sure. to consume right if now. If there are any left. If there are any yes. left. Yes, and I love fresh tomatoes. Reminds me of my grandma. So we are here um, at this part of the season. Uh, lots of fri- fresh, ripe veggies and fruits we have at home right now. And we just can't eat it all. We're going to start with that that premise, Sally. Um we want to save some for winter. What should we be thinking about? Oh, a lot of things. Um, right now, I looked at my kitchen table, and there's a pile of tomatoes. Mm-hmm. There's a pile of zucchini, cucumbers, and, of course, the figs just started this week. And uh, what do you do? You eat it all. <laughs> well, you eat it. You give it away. You eat it. You give it away. Mm-hmm. And then when your neighbors run when they see you coming, <laughs> it's, like, time to start thinking about. Um, can you... Find a way mm-hmm. to just stall them a little bit mm-hmm. by putting them in the fridge, taking care of them. Can you do something easy like fridge pickles, like um, like freezing? Mm-hmm. Um, can you get a little bit more complicated, like preserving things in oil? Mm. Um, do you want to take the plunge and do the canning? And when you get really, really good, you you start to understand the pressure canning. And then you've got everything. Okay, got it get, all. Let's break it down. Like <laughs> fridge yeah. pickles. Fridge okay. pickles. What's that? Fridge pickles is it's simple. Um, it's you make the pickles and you put them in a jar and you don't worry about sealing them. You don't worry about water bath canning them. You don't worry about sterilizing anything. You just wash the jars. You chop up the stuff. You maybe cook it a little depending on your recipe. You put it in the jar. You put it in the fridge, and it lasts you a month. A month? A month. So that'll buy you a month. That'll buy you a month. Okay, okay this is what I had to do at my house mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I have obsessive pickle eaters. Um, I had to – I jarred up and water bath canned. So I did the full treatment on them. They go on the shelf, but now what's left on the table – the next batch is going to just stay in the fridge because they can eat that for a month. If I don't give that stopgap measure, all yeah. of the canned stuff that I put away that could last me a year is going to be gone in a week. And so let's let's talk about what okay, what types of things can you preserve or can you preserve everything? What are the easiest ones? The easiest ones. Okay, first you have to know what makes things preserve. Um, fruits and vegetables. They want to ripen. They want to ripen. They want to get rotted. They want to just mm-hmm. d- do their thing so that their seeds get used. 
Um, we don't like that. Who wants to eat mushy, you know, <laughs> yeah, mushy yeah, stuff? Yeah. So what we do, um, cold, so you fridge things. Um, really cold, so you freeze things. You cook things that kills the enzyme that continue to ripen things. So you would, um, if you're going to put things away for more than a week, you're going to blanch them or boil them or roast them or you're going to do something to kill the enzymes because the enzymes want to keep ripening and mm-hmm. ripening and ripening. Mm-hmm. So give us some examples. Like what kinds of things are better to be frozen versus cook you, you cooking them first? All right. Tomatoes is the easiest. Tomatoes mm-hmm. and strawberries. Fruit, actually. Fruit because sugar will also slow down um, the the process of them going bad. So you can slice them and freeze them, and um, adding a little bit of sugar will preserve them even better. So you're slicing peaches, you're slicing strawberries. You're, even s- apples, I would tend to cook, not, mm-hmm. not, not freeze directly. But a lot of fruit, slice, little sugar, freeze. Boom. Yeah, yeah. You're done. Yeah. My... my my problem is that I have tons and tons and tons of tomatoes. Uh-huh. Now, the big ones, I leave them on the table and everybody grabs the biggest, juiciest, and that gets big chunks in sandwiches. We live on tomato sandwiches. But um, it's those little guys, like yeah. mm-hmm. like I brought in, the, cher- these, yeah. the, the cherries. You can only deal with so many yes. of them. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so what I do is um, I get a batch of them. I freeze them. I just stick them in a plastic bag and I put them in the freezer. Not the best way for long term, but perfectly good for short term, because I will put them away. And, and we I'll, say short term. Is short term, like uh, I'm segmenting them in the freezer for a couple of months. Because, mm. I mean, it's been too hot to can. Mm-hmm. I don't want to heat up my kitchen. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put them on hold by freezing them. And I'm just going to keep freezing uh. them until I get 30 pounds of them. And then I'm going to process them. 30 I'll take them out, thaw them, um, make sauce, make sauce and make that kind of stuff and then can that. Or freeze that. I feel like canning is the elephant in the room. <sighs> yes. I've never done Very it. Very intimidating. Seems intimidating. It's... What do I actually need to buy, and what are they going to try to sell me that I don't really need? Oh, they're going to sell you all the bells and whistles. And we <laughs> saw this at the beginning of COVID because suddenly everybody was canning everything. Yeah. And it was uh, uh, everybody had to have the the fancy canner, and they had to have. Y- you need a big pot. That's it. You need jars. Mm-hmm. You need the jar lids. And like it, a bell jar? No, you ones. need the jars that have the two-piece lids. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because if you're, what you're doing is you're sterilizing all of that stuff. You're cooking the food so that there's no germs in it. Um, you're cooking, you boil the jars so that there's no contaminants on the jars. You're also jar, uh, boiling the lids, which are usually two pieces. They now have fancier ones that you can reuse. Um, that's what that came out of COVID mm. and suddenly you couldn't buy any of that stuff. Mm. And then the fancy tongs and the <laughs> magnet for pulling the lid out of the hot water and mm. you know, the, don't need any the, of that. all you don't need all of that, but if you're going to do a lot of it, it makes it easier right, and right, it's right. fun. Right. And it's great. Well, thing. some of us like gadgets. Yeah. So, so if you gadgets, like gadgets, go for the gadgets, cool. yeah. but you don't but what need you're doing it. effectively, what you're doing is you're boiling the jar, you're boiling the food, you're putting hot, food in a hot jar you're putting hot lids on it which have a rubber seal and you're boiling them until you know everything's gone it's yeah. very strict recipe and then you're taking them out and as they cool they seal <laughs> and they're good for a year wow and, and are there any big don'ts because anything don'ts yes. or things you should be worried things about. you should worry about um acid food 
food that has vinegar added, food that has a lot of sugar added. These are all safe to do water bath canning. But when you're, you're doing alkaline foods, so you would never just do beans. You could do dilly beans, which are in vinegar, because the vinegar kills mm. the bacteria. Um, you would not, boiling them, 212 degrees doesn't kill botulism. Mm. So if you've got something that you would fear botulism growing in, and there you can get all of this information on the on the. Um, in fact, I got promised I could do a blog on our website. So oh. you can go to our website <laughs> yes. and, uh, and get more information about this. You got very excited about, about that, yes. <laughs> yeah. What is the yeah. web address, by the way? Pardon? What is the web address? Um, phsonline.org. phsonline.org. Real tough one to remember. <laughs> very quickly, um, what do I have to do to my plot once I've harvested everything and I've done all these steps and i got to get it ready for winter? What's the number one thing i got to do? Plant more. Plant ah, over the winter. Plant more. Over winter. Oh, man. Oh, where? No. If you're a good gardener... Uh, We'll find that you'll find that on our blog too. Um, you can extend your garden almost twelve months. Really, you gotta you gotta plan. You gotta, you gotta plan, plan ahead. Too many people they just come in. Whoosh, whoosh, uh, Halloween, we get a frost. They tear everything out. Put the garden to bed. And what? Go to the islands? Huh? Uh-uh. Most of us don't. <laughs> well, do maybe that. when winter comes around, we'll have to talk more about that. I'll that, come is, back. that is Sally McCabe. Uh, thank you for joining us on Studio Two, Sally. Sally is the Associate Director of Community Education and Community Gardens at PHS. And for more info, as you just heard, head on over to phsonline.org. And that wraps up our show Beginnings for today. and ends. Beginnings yes. and ends. <laughs> our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Tina Kalake engineered today's show. For more Studio 2, you can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and review. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Thanks for joining us, folks. 